So we're in 1 John 3, starting in verse 11, if that helps you. And I'd like to begin by a quote I I saw this week by G.K. Chesterton, who is a well-known theologian. He's written a lot of really good resources and books. But he has this quote here that will tell you what what kind of illustration I want to start off with. But I'll say it. G.K. Chesterton says this, There is the great lesson of beauty in the beast. So not Star Wars this morning. There is a, the great lesson of beauty and the beast, that a thing must be loved before it is lovable. Beauty and the beast, that a thing must be loved before it is lovable. I'm not going to go into the details of beauty and the beast, but I can say I've seen it. I have small children. Of course, I see all the Disney movies. But, you know, the beast is a character who is consumed with selfishness, consumed with cruelty, consumed with unkindness and hatred, bitter in his heart. And it's because of that that he becomes this beast. He becomes this beast where he thinks no one can possibly love him. And the story in that movie, or maybe it's beyond just the movie, you know, is that Belle is this person that ends up loving what no one thought was lovable. And I I think about that in the sense that some of the people that I found hardest to love in my life are the people that have never known love at all. I think of some of the most in need, hurting people I've ever met. And I know bits and pieces of their stories, and probably you do too. How they've been hurt time after time after time. That they've been abused, manipulated, used. And so, in a lot of ways, I look at their story and I know, how could I expect them to act any differently? They are hurting people. And there's something true about that in the sense of how we are. If you think about your own story of how you don't have to go to what in your mind might be extreme examples. You can go to your own hurt because we all have it. And if you go there, then you start to realize, wow, I have been up. I have all these wounds and I do a lot of work concealing my wounds. But in truth, God sees those things God sees you and your wounds, and he loves you. He meets you where you are, and he invites you to not just receive, it's okay, it's okay. No, he's receiving all of you. He's receiving all of you into fellowship with him. And I think at times, the gravity and significance of this for us, when we look at the gospel and following Jesus, it gets lost that we really are a lot more unlovable than we'd like to admit to the person to our left and to our right. And yet still, we know what it's like to be loved. In John, it talks about how Jesus is the only begotten son, but I had a mentor of mine years ago who loved to say, it does say only begotten, but he likes to have in his mind that Jesus was the beloved son. And we are the beloved children of God who know what it's like to be loved. I want you to keep that in mind this morning. We're in 1 John, and one of the gifts when you go through a book is that each week, um, it's almost like you're looking, you're unwrapping a present. What does God have to say to us this week? You go from passage after passage after passage, and it's not me directing exactly what's being said. It's this letter that's been passed down through the church for de- generations and generations and generations. 
We've been reflecting on how the word of life came. People saw Jesus come in the flesh and they have been called, invited to receive God in fellowship and proclaim that life to believe and hold fast. That's the crux of the letter. And it's speaking to a community of people following Jesus, attempting to become like Jesus. And last week, if you remember, I talked about the hope because this isn't a journey that's about, you know, that doesn't have hope and it. it is full of hope. Not full of hope in the sense of the things we muster to the best of our own ability, but it's filling us with hope because we are the people following Jesus that through this process are being born again. We're experiencing new life right now. We are being born again, and it gives us the ability through the Holy Spirit. Because if you follow Jesus, if you believe Jesus died for you, you've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Even the least Pentecostal person here has been given the gift of the Holy Spirit if you believe God's grace is for you. And what's amazing is how this mysteriously works in our lives. It gives us the ability, like I talked last week, to resist sin. And it gives us the ability, like I will focus more this week, on loving one another. Loving one another. It's the defining trait, according to John, who writes this letter, for the children of God, that the family of God who've been impacted by God's grace, they imitate God's grace and nature to each other. They love each other, and it is a witness to the world. And he says in the very first verse of this section we're focusing on that this was the message from the very beginning. Look at the first verse again. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Now, he said this in the beginning in chapter one as well, which is kind of this comprehensive statement about who Jesus is. But the message from the very beginning, it just echoes in my mind, and I think in the mind of lots of believers who know the gospel of John, it echoes John one. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. Love was from the beginning because God was in the beginning. Beginning of time, beginning of our stories and everything that preceded it. And creation itself, how we know it and how it was before us, is this overflowing of God's love through the fellowship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it shouldn't be a surprise to us that God, perfect in unity and community with himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, would not want to let his love stay there. They would let the love expand to involve all of creation and to create. Love creates. It's kind of love as an act of creation is inviting everyone to join the party. You're invited to join the party of the fellowship of God. We were created by love, for love, to love. Created by love, for love, to love. But you don't have to look far to see lots of examples like I started off reflecting of what God's love doesn't look like. Oftentimes when we show kindness, often we do it in the ways that it benefits ourselves. When we extend mercy, at the same time we're probably praising ourselves, Chris, that was a good job. Yeah, you, you said the right thing. You did the good thing. We share our gifts and blessings so long as it doesn't ask that much of us. We find the ways that are easy, not the ways that are costly. So 1 John, this letter, is building to, is adding on these layers of what does the love of God look like? It's not the first time he's mentioned it, but that's what we're focusing on right now. That what does the love of God look like? Good life, the abundant life with Jesus. What does that look like? What does it look like when people experience that? What happens to them? And so the next few verses and how I'm going to break this down is going through the examples that, G, that John points to. He points to a few negative examples, then he points to a positive one. 
And then he takes it to the heart. So we're going to look at some negative examples, positive example, which, spoiler alert, is Jesus, so it's a really good example. (laughs) And then it's going to shift to the heart. How does this matter? How does this enter our hearts? So first up is the negative example it gives, which immediately in verse 12 you see it. It just kind of pops out of the blue. And it's Cain. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. So I don't know how familiar you are with the story, but in Genesis 4, very beginning of the Bible, Cain kills his brother. It's, it's the abrupt, it's the first murder that we know of in history where Cain kills his brother and it's because God favored his brother Abel's offering over his own. Cain killed Abel's, Abel because his brother's offering was favored by God over his own. In Cain's jealousy and pride, he can't handle it. He can't be overlooked. There's different sort of echoes in scripture of what's going on in Cain's mind and heart. But what we see is it is a failure to love. It is a failure to love because of selfishness and hatred. And as this kind of leads us to understand this language of do not be like Cain who belong to the evil one, that when we commit to these acts or participate in these acts that are selfish, we are demonstrating some level of belonging to evil which is leading to the path of darkness. That's the first negative example. The second negative example that John points to is not just about Cain, but about what believers following Jesus experience in the world. Because what he says is that expect to be rejected by by the world. Look at what verse 13 and 14 says, okay? Do not be surprised. Don't be surprised. My brothers and sisters, that's language for the church, people following Jesus. If the world hates you, we know that we have passed from death to life. That's quite the reality. Death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. He points to the, this idea that there is a different capacity at work in people following Jesus because they're capable of loving differently because a reality has changed. What's that reality? They have changed from death to life through belief that Jesus is the Son of God and that his death, his sacrifice was enough to bring forgiveness of sins. They're changed from death to life. And it's in this same context that he also says, so do not hate another believer He's talking, I mean, it's amazing how many times he mentions this in this letter because I think he's talking to a church he knows. He church he knows where people have kind of found themselves in hatred to one another. They're hurting each other. What does it look like to be people who love and not hate? He's, he really talks about it a lot. And on the next verse, in verse 15, continues the thought. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And I think when he says that, he's thinking of Cain. Don't be like the brother who murders the other brother <laughs> Brother, over what, when you look out of context, it seems so petty and so sad that sin, evil, and darkness would result and unfold in this way. It is so sad, and yet it happens. Anyone who hates a brother and sister is a murderer. You know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. So those are the negative examples. This idea that, no, don't be like Cain. Don't let, fail to love because of selfishness and pride. And don't be surprised when you're out in the world with a lot of people who don't know Jesus, who aren't following Jesus, that you will experience vitriol. You will experience hatred. Don't be surprised about those things because that is a world living apart from God and communion with God. 
Instead, what he directs us to is this example that Jesus gives in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. So for us this morning to understand what's it like to love one another like God loves, we have to look to Jesus. Verse 16 says this, this is how we know what love is. This probably sounds really familiar. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Jesus laid down his life for us, and we should lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. It's a repetition of where I also know this is mentioned that from Jesus' own words at the upper room in John 15. In John 15, there's all these echoes of 1 John and John, but in John 15, Jesus is having these final conversations with his followers before he goes to the cross. And he says something very similar. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. He says that right before he dies for them. And I've always just received these words, whether it's First John or John 15, and I just think it's such a challenge. How do I approach relationships? Denying myself, dying to myself, and thinking sacrificially, how do I arrange and approach my relationships for the sake of others? Because God's called me to the people around me. It's not just, you know, this journey of the Christian life. It's not just learning to deny yourself to get closer to God. It is about denying yourself, getting closer to God, so that you can share that grace with other people. Not just in a checklist manner, but in challenging, authentic, full ways that would make every single person in this room uncomfortable. If we actually did this, we would embrace a level of self-sacrifice and discomfort that is beyond what is normal. But that is the love that God calls us to. And it's important to note here that there's a connection that he's applying it to here. But I think the point he wants to make is to not let anything get in the way of loving other people. And there are lots of things that get in the way of loving other people. Here, what he points to is material possessions in 1 John. He talks about how people are holding on to the things that they have and they're not sharing with people of need. And so he points to it. That this is what's getting in the way of loving other people in this church, in this setting. Let me read verse 17. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? So John here is saying the money's gotten in the way of the loving of other people. He's also mentioned other things, the divisiveness about who Jesus is. People pulling away, trying to say, I don't need to live this life with Jesus. I don't need to live with other believers. I can do it on my own. He's pointed to those things, but here he points to material possessions. And I think in his mind, he's thinking of what also is very clear in the Old Testament is an ethic of love and charity to the people that need the most. You can look in Deuteronomy 15 where it says this, if anyone is poor among you, fellow Israelites, in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God has given you, do not be hard-hearted and tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend to them whatever they need. As you'll say in the next verse, love requires action. We have to note that things getting in the way of us truly loving the people around us, but it requires action. It's not just, I'm going to give my rubber stamp. That's a good thing. We should be doing that. But how do you do it? 
John uses this term often in the letter, dear children. He's talking to really close friends. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. I have all this language of James echoing my mind too, this idea that actions and truth are the way to we express love. And then what happens in this section of the letters, it shifts. So we have the negative examples, positive example in Jesus, which he will go back to because it's so central. But then you're tempted to look at the next few verses and say, is this really connected to what he was saying? Is this kind of like a digression a little bit? Is this person, is, is he off the trails here and lost his train of thought? And I would say no. That what he says here is integral to what he's trying, to the point he's trying to make. With verse, I'm talking about verses 19 and 22, which now that he's given the negative and positive examples, he's trying to take us deeper into our hearts. What's actually happening in our hearts. Because it's not just about doing as much as how we have received and have digested, received, and processed the love of God deeply, which results in actions. Our being with God results in doing. We don't do ourselves into being. And I think the way I I, I kind of put a title to this section, which is our hearts compel us to love like Jesus. If our hearts are really engaged with the work of the Spirit and the work of God in this world, then we're going to be compelled to love like him. Let me read verse 19 and 20 and reflect on this with you. This is how we know that we belong to the truth. This is a big thing for John, belonging to the truth. And how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. So he said his piece about truth, about what it means to belong to the truth, and he urges us to look deeper. What's going on in our hearts? It's so easy to be caught up in rhythms and rituals, which a lot of which were disrupted over the past few years, but to be caught up in a pattern of life and a way of thinking of life that is self-serving, that's been formed and shaped by others' expectations and not God. What he's called to you, what he's invited you to. And he makes these two statements about this is what we know, that we belong to truth, and how we set our hearts at rest in God's presence. You see that? How we belong to truth and how we set our hearts at rest in God's presence. What's interesting, and this is where you go a little deeper, a little more in the language, is the we know is not meant to be a continuous action. We know is actually future tense, which means we will know. <laughs> we will know that we belong to truth. We will know that our hearts are set at rest with God. We will know when the questions come. We will know those things when we are challenged. When doubt enters our journey with Jesus, we will know those things. He's anticipating those questions will come. And that if we're not clinging to the truth, that we won't have a way to respond. We won't have a way to ask for help within the body of Christ. And John talks about the heart here being persuaded and convinced. And there are all these nuances in that word of trust and obey. And it's really trying to wake us up to the reality that our hearts, which is really a widening of our, to our conscience and our mind, that this is where the battle of love is taking place. The things that you've been, you found yourself loving that don't produce good, that don't produce fruit, that actually produce harm to yourself and to others. What does God's love in your heart look like? 
because our hearts are where the battle for love takes place. When I wrote that line, I thought, I thought that sounds really romantic. I don't, know if that, I don't know if that really quite jives with me, but it's, it's making the point that this is about life and death, that this is where it's happening. When you reflect deeply, when we're singing songs, inviting the Spirit to come, Jesus, come Holy Spirit, all who are thirsty, I'm thirsty, all who are hungry, I'm hungry. Singing those things is a posture of humility, saying, I'm surrendering before you, God. And I do want what you have for me. I don't want the things that I, the best I can come up with because that's not enough. I don't want the best that someone else can come up for me because that's not enough. I want what God wants for me. Our hearts are where this battle is taking place. And what he says, he's trying to talk about how our hearts are, have a conscience. There is a will at work understanding what's happening that probably only you and God knows about. Verse 21 says this, Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, which, in other words, find fault within us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. So you have to ask yourself to go to understand this section of this letter. What's happening in your heart? Have you completely yielded to God? Are there some things, many things you are still very much holding on to. The capacity for power and control. I, you know, I don't want to let go of this God because I, I, this is the only thing keeping me afloat above the water. And you think that if you let go, you will sink. But you are constantly left in a tidal wave, back and forth, clinging and not actually allowing God to hold you and to lift you. And it's not just about yielding to God. It's about trusting him to the point where you will, that, uh, trusting him to the point of obedience. That there is always this connection of being and doing. If I'm actually truly in communion with God, then how I love people looks different. The more and more I'm with God, the more and more I love like God. And that shapes my character and my heart and my expectations. It shapes how I react when the unexpected and challenging things happen. And I'm not just led to react out of my own woundedness, which is there. But I know new ways because I'm a new creation. You know, Paul talks about this because there, there, there is a depth that's happening here. In 1 Corinthians, he's being really challenged as a spiritual leader of the church. There's a group of people in 1 Corinthians that are challenging him, coming up against Paul, saying, we don't need to listen to Paul, listen to me. And this is what he says early on in the letter in 1 Corinthians. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Instead, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Await until the Lord comes. He will bring light to what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. And so this depth of being of clear conscience with God is going before him and leaving nothing back. Actually saying, God, you've always seen everything and I'm just acknowledging it. I'm actually just acknowledging that you see the sins in my heart. You see the hurts. You see the wounds. You see it all. And actually doing that with the Lord is healing. To be transparent before the Lord is healing. And what is amazing, and I believe God gives us the grace to do this, is as we experience the healing with God, then I can go to a brother and sister, and I can explore that journey of trust and faith. 
I can share a little bit more of what I struggle about with. I could share a little bit more of what I think I probably need help with or my questions, my doubts. I could share a little bit more. And that the possibilities of loving one another in the church are so full, real, and amazing because it comes from this place of belovedness. Our hearts compel us to love like Jesus when you felt the love because they lead us towards confidence. There's, a, there's some word confidence in this passage, which is pointing to assurance, that if you've gone before the Lord and you've done the work, you, you can step in confidence in his presence. You can step in confidence in the church, knowing you're forgiven, you're saved, you're freed. There is a freedom that comes from that. Our hearts compel us to love like Jesus because they lead us towards confidence in what is true. The real honest heart work before God, where you can't hide at all. You know what? Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. I already talked about that. But in the upper room conversations I already mentioned, he talks about what's connected with the Holy Spirit. He talks about what would come when the Holy Spirit comes. This is John 16, 8. And when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment and concerning sin because they do not believe in me. That all this is leading to and emerges from a belief about who Jesus is and the work he did on the cross for us. And I, and I think about this morning, and I prayed into this morning, that the reality is that we talk about conviction, we talk about assurance, and I know that a lot of us, to whatever extent and level, are under the conviction of the Holy Spirit even right now. That there are certain things that God convicts us in the moment about. Things about what we did do this past week. Things that we did not do. Things we said. Things we didn't say. And that all those things should not just be ignored. That all those things are the obstacles for us more fully loving other people around us. See, I would ask you this question of how are you... How do you want to love in response to the love that God has loved you with? And you have to note lots of the things in the way, the false expectations, the hidden pride, the self-serving, because all those things make it hard for you to see how much God loves you, but they also make it hard for you to see the needs around you or the wounds and hurts around you. Instead, you're stuck in a pattern of doing that's not actually being in the presence of God. Be with Jesus so that you might become like him and share that love with others. The way this section ends, which is coming to a conclusion here, is it kind of summarizes everything that's already been said. And it summarizes it very simply in two ways. Verse 23. And this is his command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Believe in the name of his son. And to love one another as he commanded. And then he says in the last word, the one who keeps these commands, keeps God's commands, lives in him, he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us, the spirit at work in our hearts, convicting us of the things that are in us that are not like Jesus. And giving us the grace to not only to see those things, receive healing, and to step further into the light. The more fully we enter into relationship with God, the more fully we live in his will, the more fully our hearts rest in him, and the more fully we will know what it is like to be loved and to love others in the same way. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and lead us in a response.
to talk about this reality, it, um, it can bring some level of conviction like I've already mentioned. But I also pray that it also brings a great level of encouragement because God knows our whole stories. I don't know if you think about this this way. God knows how you began your life and walk with him and God knows how it will finish. God knows what will take place for you enter into glory with God. And I think about the hope we were talking about last week and Romans 5 says this to us in a beautiful way. Because it's hope does not put us to shame. That's what Paul says. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit he has given us. And then Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us and this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's a quote I want to read um, that says exactly what I think the right posture is. And it's by a pastor in New York named Rich Villatas. who says, conviction leads to a greater belonging, a greater longing to love better. If it's conviction from the Holy Spirit you're experiencing right now, that's leading you to love better. Condemnation has us focus on how unlovable we are. Conviction leads us to greater longing to love better. Condemnation has us focus on how unlovable we are. I pray what the Holy Spirit is saying to you and what you hear me saying to you is that you were loved and that I long to love better just as I hope you do. Because I have a long way to go. And I so desperately want the people around me to know that. Because how else will the love of God increase? How else will the world know about this idea in creation? Is love overflowing as an example, witness of who God is, the source of love. And how we participate is what we do in these relationships. Or in the relationships where you are at home. How, how we respond in that love is the work of going into our hearts and practicing grace in ways that are costly. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you so much for your words of grace that are all over this book, that remind us and again and again and again that it is not about the things that we've done, but about who you are and the kind of story you tell throughout all of time and the stories you tell individually in our lives and how you draw us, not to, you love us to the extent that you don't just leave us how we are, but you invite us into healing, into hope, into renewal. And I think we desperately need that right now, Lord. So Lord, I just pray that you would continue to minister to our hearts today and in all the days to come. And just remind us when we're turning away from you, that we'd be open to you that we trust you and want to actually live our lives like we trust you. And that we operate and arrange our lives from a belief about who Jesus is and what that means for us, and that we commit to love like you do. I pray your grace would be upon us. I pray you would help us as a community to increase and multiply your love around the whole world around us because that is what you do. That is your kind of love. And I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.